Today we celebrate the resurrection. Today we celebrate the climax of our faith, the, the climax of the Bible, the culmination of everything we believe. In fact, as we read earlier, if this resurrection is not true, then our preaching is in vain and we are the most to be pitied. But because it is true, because it did happen, we stand on it secure as the cornerstone of our faith. No event in all of history touches the importance of the resurrection. The message of the Bible is that death is not the end for anyone. It is, it's not the end for any, anybody that's ever lived. Death is not the end. There is an eternal destination for all. It's either in heaven with God or in hell apart from God. That, that, that our souls and even our bodies will live forever. But that destination is still to be determined. And the climax of our faith is that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So apart from him, apart from Jesus' death and resurrection, we have no hope to enter eternity with God. This is what our faith rests upon, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an announcement and a promise that all who believe in him will also live with him forever, in eternity, in heaven, because the sting of death has been taken away. It has been swallowed up in victory. There's a story told one time of a boy who was in the car with his dad, and this boy was deathly allergic to bees. This bee is flying around the car, and they're going 70 down the interstate with cars on both sides, so they couldn't pull over. They couldn't stop. He couldn't slow down, and the dad was trying to figure out what to do because the boy's panicking and he's swiping away at the bee and the dad reaches across behind him at the back seat and grabs the bee. And the boy kind of takes a calm breath for a second and the dad releases his hand and the bee starts flying back around again. The boy's like, why didn't you kill the bee? Dad, you didn't squash the bee yet. Why didn't you kill the bee? And the dad calmly shows his hand to his son and he shows the stinger stuck in his hand. He says, don't worry, my son, I took the sting from the bee. And you see, this is what we celebrate today, that God was pleased to send his one and only son to bear the penalty of sin and to go all the way to the point of death, to swallow up Death's sting by the power of resurrection. When the Holy Spirit breathed into Jesus in that tomb and he rose again on the third day, death has been swallowed up and the stinger is removed and the bee might be flying around, the devil might be uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, but make no mistake, he does not have any more sting. He's got lies and he has a lot of good lies. A lot of good manipulation, but he has no authority here. All the authority rests in Jesus because of what he's done and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection dominates the New Testament. It's all over it because it's not merely a feature. It's, it's actually the whole point. The resurrection of Christ, the good news, the gospel translated good news is good news because of the resurrection. 
And we celebrate that today, but we should celebrate that every day. The apostles preached about the resurrection often. It was their favorite subject because they had been utterly transformed by it. John Stott, a a, a famous theologian that I read sometimes said this, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. In fact, it was the resurrection which transformed Peter's fear into courage and James's doubt into faith. It was the resurrection which changed the Sabbath into Sunday and the Jewish remnant into the Christian church. It was the resurrection which changed Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle and turned his, preach, his persecuting into preaching. The gospel transformed the apostles. Paul is preaching at Antioch in Acts chapter 13, and in this in particular sermon, we see a few key Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled by the resurrection of Christ. And so that's where I want to start this morning our time in Acts chapter 13, verse 28. Paul preaching here says, and though they found in him, Jesus, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they didn't know they were pawns in the story. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is from Psalm 2. This is a prophecy about Christ's resurrection. Begotten means to bring to life. And then he goes on in in verse 34 of Acts chapter 13. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This, of course, is from Isaiah 55. All, we know that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And here, Paul's referring to the blessings of David and how Jesus is fulfilling all of these blessings. Verse 35, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Holy One, capital H, capital O, referring to Jesus. You're not going to let him see corruption. You're not going to let him decay. His body will not decay because it will rise again, imperishable. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus did not see corruption. Jesus did not see decay. Let it be known, verse 38, to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Freedom. We're free 
Forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed because we've been freed by the blood of the Lamb. The the forgiveness of sins is possible and only possible through Jesus. And Paul is preaching this, as do the other apostles, because they've been transformed by it. Each gospel actually covers the resurrection account. Each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each author has a little bit of a different take on it. But today we're going to look at Matthew's account in Matthew 27, and we're going to spend some time unpacking this today as our primary text. But I want you to look at Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. This guy, Joseph, made a brand new tomb for Jesus, and he laid him there in his clean linen. And then he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite of the tomb, watching all of this take place. And I want to stop here, and I want to unpack something just briefly before we keep moving through the story. Jesus emphatically proves through his resurrection that it's only by God's power and his alone that this is possible. This is what we see, and we see it in certain details. And the first detail I wanted to point out is the fact that we notice there's a new tomb for Jesus, a new tomb, a virgin tomb, if you will, from a virgin womb and out through a virgin tomb. Why was this tomb new? Why was this tomb a virgin tomb with no other remains in it, with no other bones in it. This wasn't normal for them. A lot of times they, would, they, they wouldn't have a brand new tomb for somebody. In fact, the, the Jews would have been very familiar with a, uh, a scripture in 2 Kings. This is pretty crazy. 2 Kings chapter 13. So Elisha died, verse 20, and they buried him. And now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. First of all, like sharing graves is kind of weird. Second of all, as soon as he touched the bones, he'd sprung to his feet alive. I wonder if God's going to another, yet another, great length to prove that it's his power and his alone that raised Jesus. Just in case they were familiar and and knew the story and other stories, I'm sure, of this man of God, Elisha. And he, he he was such a man of God and God was so with him that even his bones somehow had power to raise people from the dead. We could spin that to think, oh, Elisha was this great man. He was this great person. And the people there surely did. And God's going to great lengths to remind us that no, the son of man has a borrowed new tomb. 
a borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb. His birth was natural. His conception was supernatural. His death was very natural, but his resurrection was supernatural. This is our Savior. This is our great high priest from a virgin womb and out through a virgin tomb. It was a new tomb with no remains in it just to remind us and just to be sure that we knew that the power belonged to God and God alone. We have a risen Savior, risen by the power of God and him alone. He is not here, the angel said. He is risen. Go and tell. Our God is alive. So we don't worship his remains. We don't worship parts of him. We don't worship a statue. We worship a living Savior. You know, there's a lot of other religions in the world that worship fragments, that worship statues, that worship remnants, relics, leftovers. When the, when the Buddha died in 483 BC, he had specific orders of how he wanted to be cremated. And he left it with his main disciple. I need you to do it this way and I need you to cremate me and, and then uh, allow there to be a certain number of relics or remains left of me, all of my jewelry, but also some uh, parts of me to be left. And the, from eight surrounding uh, uh, places, they came and they, they were fighting over these remains of the Buddha. And they came together. And, and one of the monks there, to avoid bloodshed, he just found a way to divide it up and negotiate it out so that everybody could share in the relics of Buddha. They were, according to tradition, there were 10 sets of relics that were enshrined. Eight from portions of his remains, one from the pyre's ashes, and one from the bucket used to divide the remains. So that, that last bucket had the, the least of all because it was the one that was used to divide us. So it got just the little bitty scraps left over. And the relics were then collected together and enshrined in a single Stupa. So years later, after all of this settled down, they decided to put it all in one place and they called this place a stupa. Kind of reminds me of another word that, that says it's almost the same thing. And it's, it's this basically this temple. It looks kind of round and some of them, they all look different, but a place of worship and they put the relics there and they put the remains there. And, and more now, more than, or not now, but more than a century after they put it in one single stupa, this king named Ashaka is said to have redistributed Buddha's remains and relics into 84,000 different stupas. 84,000. And so I, I got a crazy mind. Maybe you don't, but I'm thinking about like, have you ever played like wishbone on, on Thanksgiving, like to see who gets, you know, you pull the wishbone out. It's like they're, they're just like dividing up all this and they're deciding how to scatter the Buddha to 84,000 different places of worship called a stupid stupa. <laughs> they worship his remains. The pyramids of Egypt 
are famous because they contain the mummified bodies of the ancient Egyptian kings. Westminster Abbey in London is renowned because in it rest the bodies of English nobles and notables. Muhammad's tomb is noted for the stone coffin and the bones that it contains. The Taj Mahal was built as a memorial to a wife of one of the, uh, India's shahs. Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. is revered for it is honored resting place of many outstanding Americans and we love to go there and celebrate our history but more than any of that, the garden tomb where Jesus was laid does not contain any remains because he is not there. He has been risen. He's been resurrected. So we don't worship remains. We don't worship relics. In fact, if a finger of Jesus was found somewhere, our whole faith would be in question because our whole faith rests on this fact, this truth, this supernatural reality that our God loves us enough to send his only son to become sin on our behalf. The one who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then he rose on the third day in accordance with the scripture and there's nothing there to remain. In fact, he folded up his grave clothes and put them there. He gone. First Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain, but we know he has been Raised. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe said this, Easter is the truth that turns a church from a museum into ministry. Easter is the truth. The resurrection is the truth that turns the church from a museum into a ministry. And I'm convicted a little bit today that maybe if we believed a little more in the resurrection we would act a little more like a ministry. And we got more on that in a minute. That's where we're going to close today. But for now, let's get back to the story where we started in Matthew 27. Let's pick it up in verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And this is kind of their insurance policy that's coming right here. They said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive that after three days he will rise. Therefore, just in case, just to prove that he is an imposter, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and, and try to tell the people that he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. That's what these Pharisees said. They said the first fraud was that he said he would rise again from the third day. Only God could do that. Only God could make that possible. And so let's prove how wrong they really are. And then the next fraud will be worse than the first because they, they might go to great lengths to even steal his body away to try to prove that they're right. And Pilate said to them, sure, you can have a guard. You can have a whole guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. Make it as secure as you can. So they went 
And they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is pretty interesting because some, we really just talk about this in terms of the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. But, but I want you to notice that. Sealing the stone, not just sealing the grave. They sealed the grave with the stone, but then they also sealed the stone. And then they set a guard at attention, multiple. And the tomb was secured by this large stone. There's two things I want to look at. The stone and what sealed the stone. Really quick here. And, and the stone is sort of representative of human power, right? Because this stone was huge. They rolled this stone in front. Huge stone. It could not be moved by one person. And it was set at an incline. So to get it, so uh, here I am in the tomb. All right? We're going to do this little Pictionary assignment right here. So I'm, I'm in the tomb. Wait, no, because I'm going to speak it all out. So it's not actually Pictionary. Or maybe that charades doesn't really matter for the purpose of teaching. I'm in the tomb over here and here's the opening. And there was an incline going out of the tomb. The, the, the boulder, the rock in the stone in front of the tomb would have had to been pushed up the hill from inside the tomb and pulled up the hill from outside the tomb. Would have been very difficult to do. Surely impossible from inside the tomb. And this was all by design. This was representative of human power. That's a human in there dead. He can't get out. And if the disciples, maybe if they would have all banded together, they could have gotten the, the, the stone out of the way. Maybe if the guards would have been sleeping or at a bathroom break or if they had enough of the disciples together, like eight, nine, ten of them together working together, which seemed pretty hard to do at this point because they were all terrified and hiding. The stone was sealing the grave, but they also had a seal on the stone to secure it. And this was a rope that was overlapping the width of the stone, covering the entrance of the tomb. And on either side of the doorway, there was a glob of wax. So the rope obviously wasn't going to hold anything, but it was going to prove that it had been open when the wax had been broken. It's kind of like when you go to summer camp as a kid and they put tape on your door. It's not going to matter. The tape ain't going to hold you, but they're going to prove that you went to hang out with that girl that you found earlier in the day. Speaking for a friend. and Le Legitimately, I, that didn't happen with me. You could not move this rock without breaking the seal, and it was very important for the Roman Empire to know and to show that their authority was not broken. And so the guards there were intent on watching whether or not anybody was going to break this seal because if they broke the seal, the guards' life would be in jeopardy. Certainly their job, but they might come for their life as well. This Roman seal carried legal authority. To break a Roman seal was to defy Roman authority. And the rest is history. Because neither human power or human authority stood a chance against resurrection power. God's power to move the stone, 
to break the seal. Every detail of the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament reminds us that it was accomplished by God alone. Matthew 28, let's keep going. This is just the next chapter over. We're continuing in the story. Matthew 28, verse one. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Pause. Where were the men? We've heard this before. Where were the men? They were all hiding. They were all afraid. They were terrified. They thought that we were going to take the Roman Empire by force. They thought that by Savior, that meant that we were going to conquer the world now. Hosanna means save now. That's what they wrote in on. They were excited about the potential of political power now. And after that didn't happen and their hope was dashed because they completely forgot the entire Old Testament pointing to this coming. They were hiding and they were afraid. But the women went to the tomb. The women were the ones standing there, sitting there watching the, the, the tomb be sealed. And the women were the ones that went back to the tomb that day to anoint the master, to anoint their master. This was the custom to finish anointing the body because they weren't able to finish before they sealed the tomb. And so now they were going back to see, maybe they can move the stone away and anoint the body because now it's three days past and if, if he's dead, he's dead. Don't know how we're gonna move the stone when we get there, but maybe there's gonna be somebody there to help us because our guys, our helpers, our disciples aren't really about it right now. And they went in faith and they had the oil. But notice that the day before was Saturday, the Sabbath. They couldn't do anything on Saturday. As was tradition and as was custom. They couldn't do anything on Saturday. So they, wait, they had to wait till the sun went down. But after the sun went down, they went into trade for this oil so they could finish anointing the body. And they did so. And then the first day of the week, as soon as the sun had risen, the Sabbath had passed and they could go. They could go to the tomb. And so they did. They went through great troubles and great lengths to get there to anoint their master with this precious oil. And they get there and they arrive after purchasing this oil and maybe risk Risking their lives to come, and Jesus was not there. He was nowhere to be found. Jesus didn't wait for their customs. Jesus didn't wait for their traditions. Jesus didn't wait for their religion. And I think this is an important thing and even applicable for us to consider today. That he didn't seem to give much attention to their custom. He didn't wait for them to get there before rising again. Maybe he was making a, a point in this. And there was surely more points to be made by the fact that he must fulfill the scriptures just the way they were written. But I also think there's an application here that the new covenant is here. That your religion is not as important as your relationship with Jesus. And he didn't wait there for them. He didn't wait there for them. And he doesn't wait on our religion today either. What does that mean? I think it could be simplified. I think we could think about it in our Western context to mean Jesus is not waiting on your Sunday best. Jesus is not, he doesn't, he's not looking for you to come in here with a shiny smile when your world's actually falling apart, but the only thing you say to people is, I'm fine, doing good, great, had a great week, finalized the divorce. Not gonna say that out loud. 
Jesus doesn't need your, your, your put on traditional, customary, religious response to church. Jesus is not looking for the ones who look the part. Jesus is not looking, he's not out searching for good resumes. That's not what this is about. He's looking for those who are willing to take up their cross as he did. He's looking for those who are willing to crucify the flesh and die, to go to the tomb trusting in him for the power of resurrection. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11. But when Christ appeared, I think we have this. Sorry, I'm going real quick now. I'm getting excited. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. Once and for all into the holy places with God. Get this, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, no blemish, no sin, no wrong in him, How much more will he purify our conscience from dead works? Dead works. Purify our conscience from all those dead works that we're trying to bring forward to purify our resume that we might have good standing with him. How much more will he be able to purify our works that are dead so that they could be works to actually serve a living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. And so was the new covenant. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews says it's still the same deal. It costs blood. Just now we have a new and better blood. We have a new and better covenant that doesn't have to be offered every year in this customary way that has been offered once and for all. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies. They're mere copies of the true things to come. But he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Don't miss that. They understood that. We don't really understand it as well as as they did because they had all these rituals and customs that they had to repeatedly offer sacrifice for sin. They had to repeatedly make make atonement, bring blood to atone and make pure the sacrifice. Repeatedly. But he doesn't offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That's not how it is. This is how it is. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come a second time. There will be a second coming, but he's not going to come to make, what does it say? To deal with sin. It is finished. But he's going to come to save those who eagerly wait for him. The resurrection announces that Jesus is our substitute, that Jesus stood in our place and bore the wrath that we deserved. For thousands of years, bulls and lambs were brought to the altar so that God could show us a picture that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Forgiveness is only possible by the shed blood. Praise God now that we have Blood that is pure enough to be offered once and for all. Jesus declared it is finished on the cross. And God declared amen in the resurrection. Jesus said it is finished. And God put the emphasis, the emphatic amen on it through the resurrection. And he has now made us righteous in him. His righteousness for our righteousness. This is the great exchange. This is what happened for us that we receive by grace through faith alone. And now in the resurrection, we have a receipt for this great exchange. We have a receipt. The cross was the payment and the resurrection is the receipt. So for all time, we can look and we can point back to the empty tomb. We can point back to the resurrection of Jesus and we can say, this is our sin, our death, the grave. Hell is finished for me because I'm trusting in what God has done through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in his name alone once and for all. And the same plea we have today is the same plea we're going to have when we get to heaven. When God lays our life before us and says, what do you have to say for yourself? We only shall say then it's Christ and him alone. And he was risen from the dead. And I believe in him as Lord and Savior. That's all we have. That's our only plea. There's no other place to turn. There's no relics in that tomb. There's no remains in that tomb. Matthew 28, going back to the story, we're almost done, verse two. And behold, there was a great earthquake. There's a great earthquake. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven I love these details. There was a great earthquake. What kind of category was the earthquake, you know? I don't know. Category enough to move the stone. And the angel came and descended from heaven and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Correction. The angel moved the stone, not the earthquake. And the angel set on top of the stone. 
like big stone. And he's just sitting on there, bright. His appearance was like, his appearance was like lightning. And his clothing white as snow. He's just sitting on the stone, out of the way. Clear path, empty, new tomb, illuminating the scene. And what does it say in verse four? For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They just, they out there. Drooling for sure, they were drooling. I'm confident of that. But the angel said to the women, remember the women are there. The guards are out, cold. And the angel speaks to the women. I love this. I don't have time for how much I love this, but I really love that the women are still there. They're still standing and they're ready to receive this message from the angel. By the way, our kids had an egg hunt today and that's what you're hearing right now. Praise God for eggs. Uh, It's not supposed to be about the Easter bunny. It's supposed to be about the empty tomb. You get that? Like you get, you open the egg and it's like, Oh, candy gift out of the egg. An empty tomb is all that's left because we trust in the resurrection. That's a small sermon for another day, but it's a pretty cool picture. We good now. All the kids are getting back and now we're back to this story. The angel's sitting on the thing. The guards are out cold and the women are still listening eagerly. Gee, he's not in there anymore. Where'd he go? I'm looking for for my master. I want to bring honor to him. I want to anoint him. Where did he go? After this earthquake and after this giant, massive messenger from God, that's appearance is like lightning. Is speaking to them and they're eagerly listening. They're not out cold like the guards because they have a message to receive. And they have faith to believe it. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he has risen. As he said. Just a little reminder that he told you this was going to happen. Do you remember? As he said, and as the prophets said about him, And as the whole law of Moses pointed to this moment, and as we see crumbs and and details of this third day resurrection throughout all of the Old Testament, do you remember? Come and see the place where he lay. But then, verse seven, go quickly. Come and see where, where he was, but don't spend a ton of time there because you have an assignment to do. Go quickly and tell his disciples who are hiding and scared that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly. I love that obedience. Can we talk about obedience? No, because we don't have time, but that's awesome. Go quickly. So they went quickly. 
and they ran to tell his disciples. So in closing, we have an invitation and we have a commission, okay? The invitation for the ladies, come and see. The invitation for us today, come and see. The, the commission for the ladies, go and tell. Go quickly and tell. The, the commission for us today, go and tell. And we're going to look at that briefly. Come and see. The stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that others could see in. The stone wasn't rolled away because Jesus was too weak to get out of the tomb. Because he wasn't operating in human power or human authority. He was operating in divine power. And the Holy Spirit breathed life into him and he came out. He could have come out any way he chose. By the way, when he went to see the disciples later, he didn't even come through the door. He just came right through the wall. Just straight through it. What's going on, guys? Do you remember what I told you was going to happen? And we see that the stone was rolled away for our benefit, not for his. He didn't need it. We did. We needed to see in there. The ladies on that morning needed to see in there and see there is nothing left in there because he is gone. And he's not gone to just any place. He is alive forevermore. And he's walking around to go see the disciples. And he's going to see hundreds of other people too in the next days. And then he's going to ascend on high. And then he's going to come back again. The ones who the angel appeared to were the very ones who watched the tomb be sealed in the first place. Remember that. I think it's important because it's just more validation of the whole scene. Because it's just more validation, just more eyewitness accounts. It's not left to the Roman Empire to kind of stir up and, and make a story out of it. The women saw it. They were there when they rolled the stone away, or rolled the stone in front of the tomb, and they were there the next day when the stone had been rolled away. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell. Go and tell them what you've seen. Notice how simple and how plain this is, this commission, this charge. Go quickly and tell. Just tell them what you've seen. Notice that the angel didn't sit there and lay out a pop quiz for them to make sure that they got all the details right before they went and preached this Easter morning sermon to the disciples. They were terrified, huddled up. He didn't quiz them on all of the details to make sure that they were perfect in their delivery. He didn't talk to them about how they were going to bring this message with enthusiasm and correctness. There, you know, there's no formula. There's no formula to presenting the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's not a formula in this way, like be correct and then be enthusiastic and passionate, be well prepared, have a good uh, have a good resume behind you, make sure that people are going to trust you because of who you are, and then they'll be saved. There's no formula like this. Just go and tell the others what you've witnessed. Go and tell the others what you've seen. And then tell them that he's going to appear 
before them as well. By the way, the fact that he chose women to do this, the fact that God chose women to do this is remarkable in this day. The, the, the courts, like by rule of law, they would not receive testimony from women. They ranked the testimony of women on the same level as criminals and slaves. This is extraordinarily misogynistic society where they, they would not allow, it was oppressive of women, of course. It, like, there, there was no place for them to speak up about these things. There's no place for them to, to be an eyewitness account about anything for that matter. They weren't considered trustworthy witnesses. And on top of that, by the way, second egg, egg hunt is taking place right now, which is really awesome. By the way, Mary Magdalene, had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. So not only was she a woman in this culture, but she was also a former demoniac. And to some, they may think she's still either crazy or inhabited by demons, which even more lessens her ability to witness in this culture. And this is who God chose. But this isn't just an underdog story. This isn't something to focus on as primary, like just, this is just like God to, to, to raise up an underdog and, and we're cheering for the underdog. That's happening here, but we gotta be primary with what this is about. The reason that he chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong is because he wants us to know and be well aware that it's his power and his alone. It's him, it's all him. It's all him and he's, he's, he's choosing to use what the world has ostracized and, and thrown out as not educated and not able and not worthy enough to prove his power working through them. For it's, it's through your weakness that you're made strong. This is a story about one hero who is so true, so righteous, so authoritative, and so powerful that he can use even the lowliest of messengers to carry his message. Was Mary any lower than the disciples? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jesus was coming into the culture and he was burning down all the things that they held dear if it was in the way of his message being uh, taken forward. And by the way, he was even using it as leverage to prove further how powerful he is. This is beautiful. If I put myself in Mary's shoes, listening to this angel and, and considering what I was gonna carry back to the disciples, I, I would be walking back terrified, like rehearsing over and over and over. Anybody made a speech and before they did the speech, they look in the mirror and they talk to themselves for like hours. Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Okay, you can. Thank you, Taylor, me and you both. It's like that thing where you're, and then you get so sick of looking at yourself and listening to yourself and, you get, and then you get even more devastated. Like, I don't know that I can do this if this is what they're gonna be hearing and listening to. Like this, maybe not y'all, me, I do that. And I would be rehearsing this. Like, I gotta get it right. I gotta make sure that, that they understand what happened. I've gotta make sure that I give it to them in a way where they hear it and they understand it. And they're not distracted by my voice or by the way I look or by the way I say something. They're not distracted by the words I use, but they understand. I'd be frantic on the way back. Like this is Easter day. 
that Jesus just rose from the dead. I have to deliver this message with clarity or they're not going to believe it. That's what would be going through my head. Because I'm so quick to forget that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, Romans 1.16. It's the gospel that's the power. It's not a formula. It's not Jared's correctness plus Jared's enthusiasm plus Jared's authority plus Jared's good reputation equals they will be saved. That's not how this works. You're not, you're, your words are not the power. Your correctness is not the authority. There's no power in your enthusiasm. There's no power in your reputation. There's only one hero in this story. And this changes the way that we go and tell when we understand that there's only one hero and when we understand that the good news carries the power. Then we just come and we tell them the good news. We tell them what we've seen. We tell them what we've learned. We tell them what we've experienced. He's alive. My Savior lives. I have been redeemed. And I can face tomorrow. I can face anything. How did you get through the loss of, of that loved one? How did you get through that, that season of addiction and, and now you're in recovery, walking it out? How did you get through these things? It's because he lives that I can face tomorrow. It's because he lives that I've been redeemed. It's the story. And it changes the way that we share it when we realize that he's the hero and his good news is the power there was an African Muslim who was converted into Christianity and the people that knew him were blown away by this. And, and one time his, his family left him and uh, excommunicated him. But he had some new friends, some new Christian friends. And one of the Christian friends asked him about his conversion. Like, how, how did you become a Christian? How did you come to know Jesus? And he answered it this way. I love this, so simple. He said, well, it's like this. Suppose you're walking down a road and that road forks in two. And on one side, you don't know where to go. And on one side, there's a man that's dead. And on the other side, there's a man that's alive. Who would you listen to? Nobody got it. Okay. So it's like every other religion in Christianity because Jesus is alive and he tells us where to go. And I thought that was amazing. And I just left it right there. And here we are. <laughs> Here's my question for us today as we close. Here's my question. I just, I think it's the most important question that you can ever ask. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Do you believe that he was dead and now he's alive by the power of God? It's the most important question because it's what our whole Christian faith rests upon. We have to answer this question. We have to come back to this every morning. We have to look at the cross and realize that 
Therein lies our payment. But then we have to move to the empty tomb and we have to remember that there is the receipt of the accomplishment, that we find our, our, our paid in full, finished in the cross, but then we find God's yes and amen at the empty tomb. We have to confront ourselves. We have to confront this reality with our hard hearts and our impatience and our anti empathy in our non-loving way and our flesh that's so easy to be corrupted and our wandering minds we have to confront that with the fact that Jesus died and rose again if you do believe that praise God if you don't believe that or if you've never really thought about it that way the invitation today is the same as it was for them. Come and see. Come and see. This word is full of this truth. Come and see it. Listen to God's word. Let it wash over you. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate it. And, and I believe that even if it takes a while, you're going to be confronted with the reality that you can't escape. And that is that if Jesus is alive, you have to make a choice about what you're going to do with that. And if he so chooses to open up your heart, you will have no choice but to run to him. You will have no choice but to see that he is all you need. And he is our only hope. The invitation is to come and see. And when you have, there's only one response. And that is to go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell what you've seen. Go and tell what you've heard. Go and tell what you now believe. It's worthy of your life. We're going to end with these words from Revelation 1.17. These are the words of Jesus who is alive forever. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, not but, not but behold, because it was always a part of the story. It was not a course correction. I don't have time, but it was not a course correction that Jesus died. It was always a part of the plan. So there's not a but here. It's not a, I died, but then I saved it. It's all a part of the plan. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So fear not. No longer should you look around for some type of relic to worship or some type of custom to follow to get yourself in right standing before God in some type of way to climb your way to heaven as if there's a stairway. If there were a stairway, he came down the stairs and he burned them down because we're going to rise with him without need of any stairs. And he holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand because he's conquered the grave. Death has been swallowed up in victory. But there's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life and it's found in Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through him. So today, if you've never come to the Father in saving faith, I want to urge you to do that. I want to urge you to come to him and cry out to him as a sinner. God, 
I have sinned, I know I am not worthy to be called your son, but I know that because of Jesus, you have made me worthy by substitutionary atonement, which means he has taken my place and his blood has purified me for my cleansing. It's nothing I could do by works should I, so, so that I shouldn't boast. It's only by grace through faith that I come to you because of Jesus. That's on the table today. And if you don't have those words and you forgot, because I said a lot of words right there, I don't know what was happening. But if, if you don't have those words, it don't matter. You don't have to have the formula because there isn't one. If there's a formula, it would go like this. Come to me. Come to Jesus. Cry out to him in repentance and faith. Repent and believe on him for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't leave here without making that right. Father God in heaven, we're here for you. We're here for you only. It's you that we glorify today. It's you that we magnify today. You don't need us, but you've chosen to use us and we're blown away by that. So God, I pray that as we consider the greatest gift you could have ever given, which is the life of your son, and we consider the miracle of the resurrection today, I pray that we would celebrate it with a glad heart. And I pray for anyone that doesn't understand who you are for them, that maybe they don't have a relationship with you today. I pray that you meet them where they are and you tear down the walls that are in the way and you help them. You help them to come to you in repentance and faith. And God, I pray that we would be a people marked by our love, that we would be a people that have seen your glory and that would go and tell people about it that we would be known here as a bright light, not because of talent, but because of your power and your authority that rests upon us, because of your Holy Spirit that inhabits us. Thank you for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.